Welcome to the SJBC Sunday Morning Sermon. We hope you enjoy this message brought to you by our senior pastor, Dr. Richard Carver. For more podcasts, videos, and information on our church, please visit mysjbc.org. Well, James chapter 5 at verse 13, page 980. The gift of speech is a wonderful blessing. It's a good thing to have but only if it's used for God's glory. Our mouths, our tongues uh, can be used for evil things, can be used for good things. During this series of sermons out of the, the book of James, we learned that, that James had a lot to say about this tongue. He spent a lot of time talking about how believers use this gift of language and how we should not use this gift of language, this gift of speech. In this closing passage really is no difference. We uh, wrap up our series of sermons out of the book of James. This is our 15th sermon uh, out of these five chapters. In this final uh, challenge to believers, he mentions some of the lowest uses of the tongue, which are complaining and swearing. But he also mentions some of the best uses of the tongue, which are procla- proclaiming God's word, praying and praising God. Now, prayer is a privilege. It's not a right. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to talk to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I read an article this week about the Duchess of York and her wedding and how beautiful it was. I got to visit with Pat's sister uh, this week on our cruise on Friday afternoon. And she told me that she had gone to Buckingham Palace and to see all the, the wonders of the, in, in Europe. And she said that while she got there, she got a little dizzy and she... Uh, sort of collapsed or passed out, and they took her inside of the Buckingham Palace to give her some medical aid. And the person who took her in told her, you're seeing a part of the palace that no one ever sees. You're not allowed in here. You have to have special permission. Nobody gets to come in here. You know, we don't have a place like that with God. Prayer's a privilege. Don't have to have an appointment. Don't have to have some kind of special access other than to know Christ our Lord and Savior. We can walk right into the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Prayer is a privilege. And to think that as God's children, freely, we can go to the throne of grace. Freely, we can share with God our needs, our concerns, our hopes, our fears. It's important to understand that, that prayer is just a priceless, holy honorable privilege. Seven times in this passage, James mentions prayer, what it is and what it does. And the spiritually mature Christian is, a, is prayerful in the times of trouble that they encounter in their life. And instead of complaining about the situation, they want to talk to God about it. That's what a spiritually mature person, spiritually mature person does. God hears and answers those prayers. And in taking Our problems, our concerns, our hopes, our fears, our dreams to the Lord in prayers is certainly a a mark of spiritual maturity rather than going to someone else or talking to someone else. In this section, James encourages us to pray. He describes four situations in which God uses prayer in the life of the spiritually mature believer. So I invite you to join me in James chapter 5, verse 13, page 980 there in your pew Bible. James begins by asking a question. Is anyone among you in trouble? Now he's talking, remember, to Christian people. He's talking to people 
that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they're part of a New Testament church. He's not writing to lost people. He's not writing to unregenerate people. He's writing to people just like people in this room. Is any one of you in trouble? Certainly we've all been in trouble. He says, then let them pray. Is anyone happy? Which would be the opposite of trouble. So he's giving us the full spectrum, whether you're in trouble and things are going wrong or whether you're happy and rejoicing. He says in both of these situations, then let them sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. The emphasis being on prayer. And we'll come back to that. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. And we want to remember that context. He's talking in the context of a sinning Christian who is sick. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Can you imagine going 42 months without one drop of rain? That, that's desert conditions. But God answered his prayer. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if, any, if, if one of you should wander from the truth... We have a word for that, backslidden. And someone should bring that person back. This is where I get the idea of backslidden. You're going to bring them back, help them return. Remember this. Whoever turns a Christian sinner, a Christian who is sinning. Remember that he's writing to, to save people. So I have to remember the context. Whoever turns a Christian sinner... From the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Let's bow for just a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Ask you to pour it into our heart and our life. Help us to understand what's here. That we might appropriate it to our daily living. That we might bring you glory and demonstrate ourselves to be spiritually mature believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name. God answers the prayers for people who are suffering. And as God's people, and as we go through life, we often endure difficulties. Some of you in this room have endured intense difficulties. You've had family members who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ endure some awful things. I mean, some awful things. Stephanie and I were serving in a church. It's the first church we served. And there was a, a grandmother who was uh, heating up some oil on the stove to fry some french fries was babysitting her about 24-month-old grandson. The handle of that boiling oil was hanging out over the edge of the stove. That little 24-month-old boy grabbed the handle and tipped the pot and burned him from his face to his feet. Awful. One of the worst tragedies I've ever seen. Awful. Nearly burnt off his nose and his lips and his eyelids. 
It was awful. That grandmother, a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, her daughter and son, I did their wedding. Her daughter and son-in-law, I, I performed their wedding. Christian people. That was awful. I mean, awful. Sometimes we endure awful things. Now, when we endure awful things, that's probably one of the worst things I've ever seen anybody endure. Those difficulties, we have to understand, are not the result, some oftentimes, of sin in our life. That's not God judging you. That's not God saying, well, I told you not to eat that piece of cake or say that word or send that letter or make that post or do this or that. And so since you did, I'm going to punish you. That's oftentimes not what that is. It's not God initiating it. And it's not oftentimes when bad things happen to Christian people. It's not God's discipline. So what do we do during these difficult times when we're not being disciplined by God, when it's not the result of sin, even though we might have sinned? What do we do? Well, James gives us some advice. He, he, he helps us understand if we, to, to not, that we should not grumble. That we shouldn't criticize Christians and saints who are having an easier time. of Look how easy their life is, but look how awful mine is. He says that we should not do that. Nor should we blame the Lord. We live in a fallen world. Christians living where Satan rules and reigns. And any time you're a place where an enemy rules and reigns, you're going to experience bad things that is not at the hand of God or at God's design or at God's decision. Bad things just happen to good people. Sometimes Christians die. Sometimes Christians die horrible deaths. So what do we do? James counsels us in chapter 1 that we should pray and ask God for the wisdom that we need to navigate and understand the situation that we're in and to use that situation and allow God to use that situation for His glory. Because the truth is, prayer can remove, affliction, can remove afflictions of all kinds and all shapes if it's God's will. Now that's the caveat we don't like. Sometimes it's not God's will to remove an affliction. Because the removal of that affliction would open the door for us to commit greater sin. Or to not bring God glory. And so sometimes God does not remove the affliction because in truth it's better for us. And it's better for His glory. But prayer can also give us the grace that we need to persevere in troubles even if God does not remove the affliction. And when we persevere, God can use those troubles, those uh, difficult times to accomplish His perfect will in our life, and He can transform troubles into triumphs. And He does that by giving us more grace. At least that's what James said in chapter 4. That grace abounds all the more. It grows all the more. And so James helps us understand that everybody doesn't go through troubles of the same kind or at the same time. We live life in a balance, in a tension where God balances our lives between difficult times and troublesome times. And in that balance, the, the spiritually mature believer knows how to sing while they suffer. To continue to hold our faith in God even though we're afflicted. And going through difficult times and difficult circumstances. Because the truth is, anybody can sing when there's no trouble. But a Christian who can sing 
and praise and rejoice during the midst of affliction, that's a mark of spiritual maturity. Now, when James gives us marks like this, he wants us to reflect back and also to look forward. He wants us to reflect back to our most recent affliction, our most recent trouble. Now, during that time of your most recent affliction or most recent trouble, what was your response? If your response was to blame God, then you're not spiritually mature. Now, that may be hard to hear, but that's not a bad thing because that's something that you can correct. Anyone can become spiritually mature. Now, James has already told us how we do that. We do that by coming together in corporate worship. We do that by spending time alone with God in prayer and study of his word. We do that by having private worship in our hearts, in our homes, away from corporate worship. Second, James lets us know that that God answers prayer for those who are sick. So first, God answers prayer for those who are suffering. But then he tells us that God answers prayers for those who are sick. Now, we have to use common sense here. James is not giving us or saying that there is some spiritual formula to heal any and all illnesses, any and all sicknesses. Because as odd as that may sound, that cancer takes the lives of Christians as well as it does non-Christians. Car wrecks take the lives of Christians as well as it does non-Christians. And so to say that you could pray and have any ailment healed goes against what we know in our mind is common sense. I mean, I've prayed for sick people. And sometimes God has given those sick people healing. Other times, I've prayed for sick people. I always ask people, well, generally ask people, 90% of the time, how do you want me to pray? I've had pray, people ask me to pray that God come get them. Let my life hasten my death. Let God come get me sooner. I've had people pray and ask for healing. And sometimes God answers those prayers. And sometimes God doesn't see fit to heal the sick person or to take their life right then. So what is James teaching us here? And we have to put this in context and keep this in context. If he's not giving us a formula, a spiritual rule that says any kind of sickness or ailment can be healed, And since Scripture doesn't contradict itself, there must be something that we don't understand here. So what is James teaching us? The original language in the Greek is important to grasp here. If you go to the original languages, you'll find that that in the words that James uses in the construct of that verse, he's helping us understand that someone who is constantly sinning is sick. And a constantly sinning, sick Christian can be healed from the sickness caused by the constant sinning in this context. Remember, James is writing to church folk. And James is describing for us in this passage a church member who is sick because they're being disciplined by God. They're not sick from cancer. They're not sick from leukemia. 
They're not sick from diabetes. They're spiritually sick. They have a spiritual sickness as the result of some sin that they're habitually committing. And because of this habitual sinning that's caused this spiritual sickness, this is something that can be healed in a specific way. James describes this church member who's being disciplined and explains that the way to be healed or experience healing in this spiritual sickness as a result of constant sinning is to call upon the elders, the pastors of the church, the people who have been called by God to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our context, it would be me and Jacqueline. We would be the closest thing to elders that our church has because both of us are vocational ministers. We've answered the call of God. I've been ordained. She will be eventually. And because she's received the call of God upon her life, it's people like us that you would call and ask to be assembled together to pray. Now, in this situation, it was a man. It could be a woman, though. They could not go to church to confess their sins. At the end of our service, we have an invitation. Now, that invitation is spiritual. It's not just the last song. It's not the music like you have at the end of a movie that means it's all over. It's the time for us to make spiritual decisions, to join our church, to join a ministry, to pray for someone, or maybe to pray for yourself. That you found yourself bound in sin and you need to come and pray and ask for forgiveness. And so we sing this invitation. In, this, in the letter that James is writing, this person, we know that he, he's picked out a man, but it could be a man or a woman. They can't go to church to confess their sins. We don't know why, but they're not able to get there. And so this man asks the spiritual leaders to come to them. That's the elders, the pastors. And in that encounter, the person confesses their sins. Now in the early church, the believers practiced church discipline. And we still practice church discipline uh, to some degree. If people get out of line or get out of hand or are harming the name of the Lord or harming the name of the church, the deacons will go talk to them because they're charged with keeping the unity of the church. It's part of their duties as deacon is to keep the peace and maintain the peace. And so the deacons or the pastor may go talk to a church member who's being disruptive. And so we do still practice it, but not like they did back then. Back then it was a little more serious. They kicked you out of the church. In 1 Corinthians, Paul told the believers in Corinth, to dismiss the sinning members. Now, I wouldn't want to be evaluated like that, but that's what he charged them to do in 1 Corinthians 5, to dismiss the sinning member from the assembly until they repented of their sins and made things right. And once they made things right and repented of their sins, which means to stop doing it and turn and go the other way, then they're welcomed back into the assembly. The person is healed by the prayer of faith. It's not the anointing that heals in this passage. Now the anointing is part of it, but the healing comes through praying. It's still God who does the healing. It's not humans laying hand on another human that does the healings. There's no power in these hands. There's no power in that oil. There is power in prayer because that's all about God and the Holy Spirit. And so the healing that happens, happens by the power of God, not the power of a person. 
You've watched people on television go up and say, whoa, and people fall back and they're healed because they got touched. That doesn't happen much anymore. Not to say not always, but not much anymore. Yes, it happened during the New Testament days, but not much anymore. A lot of that is fakery. The power is in the prayer. So if the power is in the prayer, and it's a prayer of faith that heals the sick, then what is a prayer in faith? And that's a fair question. If we're sick and we want to be healed, and we're sick as a result of constant sinning, and we want to be healed because God's disciplining us, what's a fair question then to ask? If I want it, what is it so I can ask for it? This is where Scripture is wonderful. It gives us the answer. 1 John 5. This is what a prayer of faith is. If you ever want to know how to pray in faith, this is it. This is the confidence we have in 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will. Now that's the part that scares us. That's kind of the part that's tricky. We sometimes think that God only has one will. You know, there are lots of things to honor God. Lots of ways to honor God. I remember asking early on, I was wrestling with the call in the ministry, and I didn't want to be a pastor. And I consulted with uh, several members of my family that were pastors. And, and I asked them, I said, you know, I want to be in God's will, but I don't want to be a preacher. And they said to me, well, if, God, if that's not God's will for your life, and, and, and God's will for your life is that you bring Him glory. It doesn't mean that you have to do this particular job or this particular vocation or you have to marry this particular person. If In general, God has a, a plan for your life that you bring Him glory. And there's a full spectrum of things in your life that can bring Him glory. I mean, you can work at McDonald's and bring God glory. You can work at GE and bring God glory. So you just got to work. That's the mandate of Scripture is that you not be a sluggard. That we be like the ant and that we work hard. So get a job and work hard. And in all those different vocations, you can bring God glory. He says, this is the kind, that we, if we ask it, uh, anything according to God's will, He hears us. That means if we don't ask for things outside of God's glory. If we ask for things that's not going to bring God glory, He's going to say no. Because he protects his glory. Particularly when it comes to a believer who's praying for something specific. He says, but this is the confidence we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So that's a marker. If we've been praying something, and we know in our heart that perhaps it's not what God would want, we get that twinge of the Holy Spirit telling us, ah, maybe you shouldn't pray that's exactly like that. He says, and if we know that he hears us, and that's rhetorical, we do know that he hears us. When Christians pray, God listens. When lost people pray the prayer of faith, God listens. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask. In other words, that means if we ask for things that are outside his will, or whether we, things, we ask for things that are in his will, he hears both those prayers. Whatever we ask, he hears then we know that we have what we've asked of Him if it's within His will. That's the prayer of faith. 
to pray in faith. And James has told us, if it be the Lord's will. He just told us that in chapter 4. The prayer of pray, faith is a prayer offered when you know the will of God. you got to know God's will to be praying. Now God's will may be, Father, I know you want me to go to college. Now sometimes God will tell you specifically where to go to college. For me, he didn't. I could have gone anywhere for college and been within God's will. He just wanted me to go to college. But when it came to seminary, Stephanie and I knew very distinctly where God wanted us to be. I wanted to go to Southwestern in Texas. That's where I wanted to go. I had my mind, I'd go there, I'd go to Texas, and we'd study in Texas. And I was excited to go to, to Southwestern Theological Seminary in Texas because I felt like I needed to get away from home, get out where we're on our own. Man, God slammed that door in my first application. I mean, he shut it tighter than a drum. They rejected me completely. My feelings were hurt. I'm smarter than what you think I am. I applied to seminary. Back then, you had to do it through the mail. There were no online application things. I got my letter back in the mail, and, and uh, the advisor's name was Dr. Fruitland. Dr. Fruitland said, come see me Tuesday at whatever time. Might not have been Tuesday, but come see me. I went, and I was accepting a seminary that day. I knew that's where God wanted me. So I went to Southern Seminary here in Lowell. Got a wonderful education. Met people who changed my life forever. People like Dr. Frank Tupper. I mean, he changed my life forever. I'm so grateful for him. The way he taught me and, and helped me understand about God's providence and love and care and mercy and how God is sovereign and yet we still have free will. He opened my mind to so many things. He's at Wake Forest a professor now. I still keep in touch with him, still following. I love that man. If I'd gone to Southwestern, I'd never met him. If I'd gone to Southwestern, my understanding of God probably would not have changed. So the prayer of faith is offered when we know God's will. I knew God wanted me to go to seminary, so I started applying to seminaries. I didn't know till the end of that application exactly where he wanted me. In this context, the pastors would seek the mind of God in the matter when a person calls and asks them to pray for them because they're sick. And then that pastor, that elder, would come and pray according to God's will for that individual. Now, a pastor can't do that. An elder can't do that unless they've been searching the will of God. It doesn't happen that way. We have to know God's will if we're going to pray God's will. And those who claim that God heals every case are denying both Scripture and experience. It's not true. I mean, even people in the Bible died who are believers in Christ. I mean, keep in mind that it's not the in, one individual who's praying. It's the pastors here in this passage. It's the spiritual men and women of God. Third, God answers prayer for the sick, but God answers prayer for our nation. Now, if we want God answering prayers for our nation, that means we've got to be praying them. If we're not praying for our nation, we're leaving her afloat. And that's dangerous. James points to Elijah. You know Elijah, 2 Kings. He was a prophet of God, or 1 Kings. 
He was a prophet of God and as an example of, of a righteous man whose prayers released power. I mean, he walked with the Lord. The background of what James is writing about is in First Kings. In First Kings, uh, wicked Ahab and his wicked wife, the queen Jezebel, had completely led Israel away from God. Completely. Led them into pagan worship, into Baal worship. Worshiping idol gods and foreign gods. And because Ahab and Jezebel had led the children of God, the nation of Israel, away from worshiping him, God punished the nation by holding back rain that they needed for three and a half years. Punishing them. Elijah, in the context where James is preaching, he challenged the priests of Baal that Ahab and Jezebel had invited into the nation of Israel. And he challenged the priests of Baal to come up to Mount Carmel. He said, I tell you what, Baal priests, I dare you. I challenge you. You go pray to your God, and then I'll pray to my God, and let's watch what happens. So up there on Mount Carmel, the priests of Baal began to put together a sacrifice. And all day long, they cried out to Baal. All day long, some of them even slashed themselves, sacrificing themselves to Baal, asking Baal to come down and, and accept their sacrifice that they had, where they'd slaughtered these animals. All day long, they prayed. All day long. It started to get dark. Elijah said, can I try now? They said, sure. Elijah prepared his sacrifice, except he prepared his for Yahweh. He arranged the sacrifice, and he called out to God one time. Didn't have to cry out all day long. Didn't have to slash himself, do all this and do all that. Scripture tells us that one time he said, God, if you find this sacrifice acceptable, receive it. Those words no sooner left his mouth than fire jumped down out of heaven, consumed that sacrifice, and he had proven that Yahweh was God. But the nation still didn't rain. Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel. He fell down before the Lord in prayer and he prayed that God would send rain. One time. Now when he prayed for the fire, it came right then to consume the sacrifice. But when he prayed for the rain, it took a little while. Elijah had a servant with him and he asked his servant to go look out and see if he saw any rain coming. He sent him out one time. Nothing there. Two times. Sorry, Elijah, nothing there. Three times. Still nothing. Four times. Nothing there. Five times. No, no rain. Six, I'm sure Elijah's getting discouraged. Six times. Servant, go out there and see if there's any rain coming. No, no rain. And they sent him out the seventh time. And the servant came back and said, there's a little cloud out there about the size of a hand. And Elijah began shouting and praising the Lord because before long, 
there was a great rain and the nation was saved. Now, the point is that Elijah was a person just like you and me. Yes, he was a prophet. But you know, you can walk just as close to the Lord as Elijah did. It's a choice. He wasn't perfect. In fact, right after the victory at Mount Carmel, after God had sent fire down after he'd gone and called and prayed for rain, Elijah got so depressed that he asked God just to kill him. God, I'm going to sit right here and just let me die. Take my life. He got so discouraged just right after that event. He was just like us. He was obedient to the Lord, though, and he trusted him. God's promises of answered prayer then are for all his children. People just like us. Not just for the spiritually elite people. It's for everybody. Now, Elijah prayed for his nation. He prayed that God would set her free from idolatry. And so he went to battle with the people, the prophets of Baal. He prayed for his nation that God would send rain. And God did. James tells us that God answers the prayers when we pray for our nation because he wants us to pray for our nation. When was the last time you prayed for the United States? Now it doesn't matter who's in office. Might have been the person you wanted or didn't want. From jailer to president, doesn't matter. God says pray for your nation. Well, what do you pray for your nation? He doesn't say pray for your political party. He says to pray for your nation. But well, what do you pray? We pray and ask God to bring conviction to our nation. And we pray and ask God to bless our nation. The idea is that if we pray for the sick, surely we must pray for our nation. And that showers of blessing will come. I mean, one of the greatest responsibilities of a local church is to pray for our government leaders. Pray for them by name, whether you like them or not. Because God can use anybody. And then fourth, God answers prayer for the straying believer. The idea is that you know, if we can pray for sick people, we can pray for suffering people, we can pray for our nation, then surely we must pray for the brother or sister who wanders from the truth. And these verses deal with our ministry to believers in our congregation. This group of people who stray from the truth and get into sin. He's talking about people who are members of your local church where you come to on Sundays and Wednesdays and worship and serve. Now to wander from the Lord, to stray from the Lord, is a gradual moving away from God's will. The old Baptist word for that is backsliding. You don't hear much preaching about backsliding anymore, but that's exactly what it is. It's the slow, gradual process of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ sliding back away from the truth. It's backsliding. That's dangerous for a believer to backslide. Because there is in Scripture, there is what's taught the sin of death. That believers can commit a sin that God would rather take their life than allow their sin to cause someone else to stumble or to harm His glory. That's a scary thought. Now my grandfather was General Baptist. And General Baptist believed that you could lose your salvation. Now we don't believe that, but they did. My papa, every night before we'd go to bed, he'd say, 
he called me horsefly. He'd say, horsefly, he'd say, you prayed up? He'd ask me that nearly every night. He'd call me toe frog, too. Uh, he'd say, toad frog, you prayed up? He didn't want me to go to sleep in case I died in my sleep because I'd go to hell if I had sin. Because they believed that if you died with sin in your life, you wouldn't go to heaven. If I went off to a ball game, he'd say, you prayed up? When I got home from a ball game, he'd say, you prayed up? We'd be out on the tractor. He'd say, you prayed up, boy? <laughs> because in his mind, if I wasn't prayed up, if I didn't have all that sin confessed, I might stumble and fall and hit my head and die, and then I'd go to hell. Now, we don't believe that. We believe that we're forgiven for past, present, and future sins when we accept Christ. But that's what he believed. And it was important for him that I be prayed up. It was also a nod to being backslidden. Because it's dangerous to be an offender of God's glory for a believer. Because when we start offending God's glory, He's a jealous God, and He will discipline us, and we won't like it. Backsliding is dangerous to the church. A wandering, believing offender can influence others and lead them astray. And that's why the spiritual members of the church have to step in. In our situation, it's our deacons. That's, they're charged with that duty. To guard the flock and protect the unity. I'm grateful for our deacons. We've got some good ones. But it's the, the, their responsibility to watch the church, as well as the pastors, the elders, for members who've wandered away. See, the center here is a believer. We have to understand that and keep this in context. This is not a lost person that Paul's talking about. The sin in the life of a Christian, it's worse than sin in the life of a non-Christian. Because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, residing in us. So what are we to do when we see a fellow believer wandering from the truth? But well, we should pray for them, to be sure. But we must also seek to help them. They need to be turned back into the right path. Because that's a dangerous path to be on. Because it's outside God's will. We're going to sing a hymn invitation as Jacqueline comes. This brings us to our end of the study of the book of James. And it's been good. I've enjoyed it. It's caused me to grow. And the emphasis in the book of James is on spiritual maturity. That we as Christian people should be spiritually mature believers and living that way. And, and this is a good time for us to examine our lives. To ask the question, am I living as a spiritually mature believer? Am I becoming more and more patient in the testings of life? Am I being more and more uh, reflective of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life? Do I find joy in obeying uh, the Word of God or do I uh, just study it to learn it? I mean, these are important things for us to think about as we sing this hymn of invitation. If, if there's a spiritual decision that you need to make, I invite you to come. I'll be glad to pray here with you. Let's stand together as we sing.